Andy Stanton has been a stand-up comedian, a film script reader and a cartoonist, amongst other things, before he became a children's author. He's best known for his Mr Gum series of books, which have won numerous prizes, including the Red House Children's Book Award, two Blue Peter Book Awards for Best Book with Pictures and the inaugural Roald Dahl Funny Prize. Andy met recently with Nicky Gamble to talk about his career and his latest work. In the reading corner today, uh, I'm almost giddy with excitement because we have Andy Stanton. Um, and Andy Stanton is going to talk to us a little bit about his new book, The Paninis of Pompeii. I'd like to start, actually, Andy, by asking what your panini moment was. Were you actually eating a panini when you came up with the idea? <laughs> no, me and my brother have this thing where we've, we've decided that paninis are the most boring food of all. You know, like, oh, come to our cafe, we've got paninis. We always say it like that. So that expanded out into boring things, a paninis, and boring people, a paninis. So just as with Mr Gum, where the whole series is set in a town called Lemonic Bibber because Lemonic Bibber meant for me anything that was rubbish it was just nonsense I'd just nonsense words that I came up with one day I'd say oh that film was a complete load of Lemonic Bibber you know so the uh, Mr Gum series is set in a load of old rubbish Lemonic Bibber and the Paninis of Pompeii <laughs> is about a bunch of boring people but they're not boring really but it's yeah. just a little yeah. thing that makes me happy Brilliant. Okay. I'd like you to this morning to be the professor of humour for us and we talk a little bit about being funny. Funny is one of those things that often it's under a big umbrella um, term, but there's such a wide range uh, within what it means to be funny and to create humour, isn't there? Yeah, there's all sorts of different funny. There's very dry, ironic humour and then there's broader stuff and then there's sort of... Uh, quite domestic like for example I think Horrid Henry is sort of a domestic comedy really it's a mm. domestic sitcom whereas my stuff is more kind of conceptual cartoons mm. uh, and my stuff is a lot more surreal and involved with or concerned with kind of the form of things I'm always messing around as you know with uh, books pretending to finish early and sort of chapters that don't exist and actually breaking the fourth wall and talking, uh, you know, addressing the reader directly, or sometimes my characters know they're in stories. So there's all sorts of types of humour, and I think it gets a bit marginalised, and certainly for kids, because people forget that humour isn't the only tool you use. I've always been really careful to remember that it's just a tool, even though it is a very a tool that's very at the forefront of my books. What I'm trying to do is the same as any author is trying to do is to hook the reader into a set of characters and storylines they can care about with real emotions and real stakes mm. and consequences if things go wrong uh, so that's always the challenge when you write narrative that's always going forward when you write jokes jokes break narrative they break momentum they go to the side so the trick is to keep the narrative going forward but to also take this big raft of uh, wingmen and wingwomen <laughs> and digressions with you mm. at the same time. So you're bringing a whole phalanx of things forward. Mm. And that, that writing humour is, is hard. All writing's hard. But you have particular problems with humour in that they can get in the way of 
forward momentum. So that, mm. that's the game, that's the mm. challenge. Mm. But I think if you realise that... Well, I think in adult books, you often hear sort of, oh, well, wonderful, a, a comedic triumph, awfully dry, awfully droll. Uh, and in kids' books, it's just, oh, it's just silly stuff. No, it's not. Humour mm. makes a lot of serious points and... You know, it's quite hard. Mm, mm. Um, when I was just reading the um, Pellinis of Pompeii and I was looking at the, ra- even within one book, the range of humour that oh, you good. use is amazing. Is it? Uh, it, <laughs> it, it? Well, it is, you know. Um, I think some people just comment on the scatological. And there is the scatological in there. You know, you do talk about farts quite a lot. I do talk about farts, but even then it's an abstraction of it. Yeah. Thereof. I don't use them in the way that most people use them in this book. Yeah. But yes, do tell, carry on. No, tell us a bit more oh, about that. Sure. Well, you know, a lot of writing is instinct. And I had Caecilius, who's this trader. Mm. Uh, he's a merchant. And, um, you know, I found myself writing... Caecilius was a fat merchant who lived it, and then it went from fat to not only was he a fat merchant, he was a fart merchant. And that's just my mind going, fat, fart, fat, and playing with noises. And then I just thought, well, that's right. Mm. Then so he is. Mm. That feels good. Mm. And then farts in the book, in my version of ancient Pompeii, turn into this bizarre currency where Mm. they're traded down at the market and they seem to be delicacies that are offered round at dinner parties. So it tickles me to... I think, again, talking about marginalisation, in kids' books, it's really easy to mm-hmm. go for poo, knickers, wee humour. Mm-hmm. And I like to, as much as anyone, I like a good gag like that, but when it becomes the raison d'etre of the books, I don't, I don't appreciate that. I think kids deserve better. Mm-hmm. I like to find new solutions, so it's funny for me to have farts, but to use them in this way that doesn't make any sense at all. To tell kids in some way, mm-hmm. funny, laugh at fart, but then what am I doing with it? And, you know, uh, my friend was reading it out to her sons the other day, and the little one's five, and it blew his mind. That yeah. He was like, but mummy, you can't, how can you hold a fart? How are they, what are they? And the, so, exactly. So I like, you know, I like to put little uh, open doors to kids, but then trip them up a little bit. That sounds yeah. wrong, but, yeah, you know, yeah. but actually exp- push them a little further than they knew they were going to be pushed. Yeah. Um, but, I, but yeah, I, I've been... I think I'm generally lucky in that there are, you know, there are some scatological things in Mr. Gum too. There are, there's, gro- there's gruesome and there's mm. gross out humour mm. in Mr. Gum, but it's only there to seed the rest of it. Mm. And just to, it's, it's a case of be, uh, keeping kids safe while they read and letting them mm. have easy laughs here and there. Mm. But then going, ah, now I've got you, let's come a bit further with me. Mm. I think there's a number of uh, points in there. One is, that you can't use these things gratuitously. Exactly. Because actually people, kids see through that, really. If there's nothing I beyond that. I'm bored yeah, of it. Yeah. I think the other thing is that it um, probably serves a purpose for children in a way that it enables them to push against boundaries of what norms are and to discover what those are and to play around with that. Yeah, I like the idea that a six-year-old will get something different than an eight-year-old out of my books mm. and probably something different again from an 11-year-old. In Mr. Gum, 
there's a bit where Friday O'Leary makes this bizarre speech mm-hmm. in this kind of weird rustic, oh, there you'll be old wives' tales, a belderin' and a blimmerin' and a blabberin' and it'll be now. And then uh, Polly goes, uh, sorry, Friday, so what are you on about? And Friday goes, oh, no idea, actually. And that's uh, to take that whole speech that Friday jumps into is taken word for word from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Wow. And that's in Mr. Gum and the Biscuit Billionaire, the second Mr. Gum book. And it really makes me laugh, because the speech itself is funny, that's why it appealed. Having him talk in this crazy way and then going, I've got no idea what it was on about, is funny. But then, a kid who might read that at eight or nine, maybe they discover Bram Stoker's Dracula at 15, 16, maybe they're taught it in school. And then they suddenly go, hold on a minute, I reckon... And then their mind explodes all over again. Yeah. Was that in that book I used to read as a kid? And that's what I call a time bomb joke. But it's about, it's about working on different levels and it's about making seemingly silly things resonate and their way, to me, their ways into conceptual thinking or um, as, as, in fact, the whole of... Uh, I sound very grandiose, don't I? They're, they're way, my books are ways into conceptual thinking. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the Paninis of Pompeii, for me, is a, an insane remix of a uh, Latin textbook I had to study at school, which was, I think it was called the Cambridge Latin course or something. And I hated Latin. I only had to do it for a year or something. We didn't have a good teacher. But th- we had a textbook based around a merchant called Caecilius. Mm-hmm. And... I love the idea of remembering things or knowing enough about something to know what the beats are, mm. to know what the conventions are, and then running with it, and knowing that you're going to then tangle it up and get it wrong out of all proportion. After I wrote The Paninis mm. of Pompeii, mm. I managed to con my publishers into uh, giving me a research trip to Pompeii. I, was a re- I had to go to Rome to do something, and I... Mm said, uh, can I go and research Pompeii? I love the really idea. You really did? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you really... Yeah, but after it, was, <laughs> after it was already put to press. So I love the idea that I read the, wrote the book and then researched it once it was too late. That makes yeah. me laugh conceptually. But it will come in useful. I was going to say, you, it's a series, isn't it? It's it got is. plenty of opportunities later. It was, it was funny going to Pompeii and seeing all the things I'd got wrong that I didn't mean to get wrong. Yeah. I was like, they didn't have drainage woods. Yeah. I don't... All the things that I get wrong on purpose, yeah. like, you, you know... They didn't actually, as far as anyone knows, a trade and eat farts in ancient Pompeii, and they didn't invent pencils with rubbers on the end. I'm surprised so, to hear that. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to <laughs> you know pop your bubble, but uh, those things—they're me—they're me adding my flavour. But when I go there, they go, "Oh, mm, they haven't got drainage." Well, oh well, some some historians going to point that out. At which point, I'll just say, "Well, surrealism. Yeah, it's fine. They do now." Yeah. Um, but again, I really, I really like the gap between what we think we know mm-hmm. and how authoritatively we mm-hmm. go around talking about things we don't know all the time. Really, you know, yeah. we're always giving advice to friends and da da da, and that's good. Yeah. But um, you know, how much do we really know? So that's the sort of stuff that interests me. Yeah. Uh, that's the machinery under the silliness, and, yeah. and then the other thing. You know, I mustn't lose sight of the fact that hopefully I'm just trying to make people laugh as well. Yeah. But yeah. I do think that the world is such a confusing place that you just have to throw up your hands and go, well, not all of it makes sense, does it? Let's have fun with that. Yeah. Just be nice to each other and have a laugh. Yeah. So, um, 
coming to Mr. Gum then, who's yes. found a new generation. I know it seems strange to be talking about a new generation, <coughs> but actually the children that read Mr. Gum first time round, they'll have gone through school, so we have got a new uh, generation of readers. Well, and I hope we have, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, he's about to become... He's going to the theatre. An theater. actor. An actor, yeah, yeah. yes. That's the first film, I think. My goodness me. So tell us a bit about writing that. Well, the National Theatre approached me mm. and asked if I would like to turn Mr Gum into a play. And I said, I've always seen it as a musical because I think musicals are very funny. And I love musicals. I love how they're a mix of high sophistication because they're such crafted things. But they're also such brazenly string-pulling, manipulative things. You know, they, mm. they're all about manipulating the audience in the most brazen way possible, but then dressing it up to make it as subtle as possible at the same time. That appeals to me. So they said, yeah, we can make a musical. I don't think they knew what they'd bitten off. I didn't. And uh, we have Mr Gum and the Dancing Bear, the musical, at the National Theatre, summer 2019. And then if it does well there, as I hope it might, um, we'll tour it around the country. That's the plan. So um, that is probably the ride of my life at the moment. I'm really, really involved because I want—I never want to turn things into things mm. just because you can. Mm. Uh, I've always hated that idea because, especially where kids are concerned, yeah. And you don't want to disappoint a kid. I like the book, but look at that—the film was rubbish. Yeah. I, it makes me mad. I, I, so you know, I've had lots of offers to do things in the past with Mr. Gum, and I've pursued some, and I've turned down lots, and nothing's ever quite landed. Mm. But this time, mm. I can't believe it's happening. I've got goosebumps just talking That's about it. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. We're, um, as this interview is being recorded, we're in rehearsals. By the time it goes out, I think we'll have been on the stage, and you know, we'll have lived or died by the decisions we're making as I speak now. And it's brilliant. I'm working with so, so many talented people. When you're writing a book, you're the king or queen of your own domain. You've really got license to do whatever you want. And if you want to add a million spaceships to a scene, it's free. <laughs> it's easy. You just say, suddenly a million spaceships appeared. When you're working with the theatre, it's a different story entirely. Uh, you can't, you know, there are certain logistical limitations and time limitations and resource limitations that, you know, become, a, a di it's a different box to put things in. You have to work with, with uh, you know, that, those different restrictions. I say restrictions, limitations, just a different set of rules, really. But the best thing for me, really, is just truly learning to work collaboratively with a lot of people who are mm. all absolute experts in their field so you've got actors, you've got musicians you've, I've got an amazing director called Amy Hodge, an amazing composer called Jim Fortune and then you've, we've got brilliant people uh, on costumes, art design you know all the, thing, all the things that go to making up a musical and I have to learn when to stick my nose in and go oh actually they wouldn't say it like that because they don't say it and actually to go no you take my baby and you put it in mm. new clothes as well mm. so uh, my brain is on all departments of it, but I have to. Yeah. I have to choose my moments. Has the process of watching that evolve um, given you anything that might feed back into your writing? Yeah, absolutely, a million things. I mean, firstly, uh, it's given me an appetite to work in theatre more. Well, I say that now. We'll see <laughs> what it's like when it's actually been on stage. But yeah, I. I mean, you know, I'd never written a play before, and. 
it's not a bad first gig at the National Theatre. And the more it went on, the more, you know, you're always changing the script and having to find new ways around things or something that seems to work on the page doesn't work mm-hmm. when it's put into the room or literally they go we can't afford a motorbike on stage uh, so then they go can it be an invisible motorbike and then I go not really but I suppose and then uh, you know we find our way through a bunch of different problems but even as I've written I've found a very crude example is that in my first efforts at the script I was always putting too much information into the mouths of the characters and then actors would come in to test these things and workshop them and then I'd go oh they did so much with their actual facial expressions and body language I, I, would, I would have them going oh no that's gone wrong and now I'm really sad and mm-hmm. I go oh, probably don't need the now I'm really sad but they've just done that with their face mm-hmm. uh, it, it's taught me so much I'm mm-hmm. not making a good job of uh, boiling down for you what it's taught me but it's, it's taught me so much it's uh, I think that is one of the really interesting things about theatre, is people think it's dialogue. Right. Don't they? And when we teach children in school to write a script, it's really just writing the dialogue and a few strange directions. But actually, theatre is about so much more than what people say, as you've just yeah. expressed, really. <clears throat> it's my job to learn mm. what the theatre gives me. Mm. And that affects the games I can play in theatre because in my books, as I say, it's all about mucking around with form and taking the conventions of books, which, I, you know, books are, books and music are my greatest loves, but books are the things that I know most about and that's why I feel confident to play some conceptual games with kids. On the stage, it's been a process of learning that I can tinker with the sort of fourth wall on the stage, but find interesting ways to do that. Mm. Uh, I feel like I've learned about five years' worth of theatre in the last six months alone. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, I'm, you know, it has made me opened up, for me, what I would like to do in the future, whatever that is, I don't know. But another really interesting thing that I've learned is that things that work in... You know, because I'm adapting my own book, Mr Gum and the Dancing Bear, but things that work on the page don't necessarily work when you dramatise them you have to change them, you have to make them more dynamic and dramatic than they are on the page. You have lots of safety nets on the page. You can have the narrator explain what's happening and paint the atmosphere. On the stage, it's different. I think there would be to, to get the stage play working dramatically, it's pushed some of my characters, who I've been living with these characters on the page for 15 years or whatever. They've Mr Gum especially has probably made his greatest leap forward in terms of character development in this play Mm. because I had to find I had to give him a new darkness at certain points to get you know to move the play forward interestingly and dynamically and Mr Gum had to grow as a character so yeah it pushes Mm. me Mm. I was going to ask one uh, final question for this interview (coughs) and that is whether there um, aware in putting the show together that it's for a family audience rather than just children does that come into it or is it a children's piece well I'm writing it so I'm not going to let them get it that wrong it's, <laughs> I, my, my books as you know are 
enjoyed by children and they're enjoyed by yeah. parents and teachers as well. I'm very lucky uh, that I wrote something that, well, I wrote it to entertain myself and kids and I'm a 45-year-old man, so I, mm-hmm. I've, I've, you know, I, I don't like to talk down to kids. I mm-hmm. try not to. And I like to, as I say, push them a bit further and I think, they, I think kids deserve a lot mm-hmm. more credit than people sometimes give them. So that's the joy of the show, is that there are things... It, it, it's for a family audience, as you say. There are jokes in there that not every kid will get. Mm-hmm. But they... I like talking on stage at book festivals when I'm talking to kids with their parents because I play to both mm-hmm. age groups at once and the adults get the chance to come to the kids' level and enjoy the show at that level. Mm-hmm. And the kids, now and again, might miss a joke or not fully understand something but because they're with the adults it brings everybody together they, the kids know something's going on that's a tiny bit above their head not a lot here and there and the adults come to the kids level and it works mm. that's, did that make any sense at all? that made perfect sense well, so Andy can I just say thank you thank you thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine if you've enjoyed this podcast You can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues. Just Imagine also has a free fortnightly newsletter packed full of the latest news, CPD training, reviews and giveaways. To sign up, visit justimagine.co.uk forward slash newsletter.